Welcome to episode 35 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. James Cohn here. We are recording at James's house in Mid-City, New Orleans. This yeah. is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. And of course, as soon as we start, the cat is on the table <laughs> causing havoc. Yeah, every recording space we have has some kind of problem, and this cat is definitely the terror of this one. <laughs> uh, James, it's been a month since we recorded an episode together. Yeah. What have you been watching? Well, finally got around to seeing 20th Century Women, which I loved. I wish I wouldn't have waited this long. And then I went through all of his movies, Beginners, and then... Thumbsucker. Thumbsucker. I haven't seen Thumbsucker. It's good. Yeah. Uh, But I do think his movies, like, get better as they go on. But 20th Century Women just, like, floored me. The soundtrack of that movie alone, like, makes me Oh, yeah, Talking Heads, like... And just a lot of good punk music. Yeah, a little bit of Black Flag. No, it, it was great, dude. Like, such a good character study, and like, all the characters felt very real, and like, you really feel like you understand them by the end of the movie. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. It would have definitely been on my top 10 list of 2016. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, it was phenomenal. Yeah, that was my big regret, too, is that it didn't actually hit New Orleans until after the year was over, and I'd already written my list, even yeah. though it was technically a 2016 release. But yeah, just I love Mike Mills' um, storytelling style between Beginners and 20th Century Women, where you get like a snapshot of someone's entire life, like almost as an aside, and then you like jump back into their in-the-moment drama. Yeah, also the way he kind of plays around with memories, a lot of times a character will say something or do something, and then later on you'll get the clear picture, the context, have some sort of memory, and then jump back to present time. And so it's just like the whole movie sort of adding complexity and layers to the characters. Um, he's great. I definitely like put him up there now, like directors. Yeah, he's super exciting as far as like younger directors go. Yeah, I really want to see what he does next because 20th Century Women, A+. Really enjoyed that. On the other end of the spectrum, I saw a horrifically bad movie that I had been putting off seeing since I... Read this Roger Ebert review where he like he has this really good quote about it, saying that it's a movie about nothing for nobody, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the movie is Boat Trip, mm. starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and Horatio Sands, where they piss off a travel agent who uh, books them on a gay cruise. Oh God, that's the premise. Yeah, and the the travel agent is Artie Lang, and. Uh, and yeah, it takes them way too long to realize they're on a gay cruise. First of all, it's extremely offensive. It's not funny. There's scenes that I, I won't spoil because I think I want you to watch it. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I might have to force that on you. But there's scenes that just have my mouth hanging to the floor like, what in God's name is going on and why is this movie been made it was truly like in the top 10 worst movies i've ever seen and you know we've seen a lot yeah of bad movies but it is definitely up there it is trash it's all like gay panic humor so horatio sands character is homophobic and then he gets on this gay cruise and like realizes like oh i'm gay and stuff like that and also like just the stereotypes and the caricatures like everyone on the cruise is like a screaming queen you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's no, no like subtle... normal characters, right? There's yeah. no subtlety really to any of it, and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a truly awful movie. It's on Netflix now, <laughs> and uh, if you're in the mood for something like that, if that's up your alley, just to get your blood boiling. <laughs> yeah, I think also it has to do with, like the '90s. Maybe when it was made, it's just a particularly vile time in humor. I don't know. Like, I'm still trying to put my finger on what was in the culture to make them think this was a good idea. Well, they also said that I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry movie with uh, Adam Sandler. It's kind of a similar vibe. I would say it's definitely up there with that, which I've only seen parts of. But This one, uh, Boat Trip, plays on TV all the time, Like, which is kind of strange to hear that's the premise. Because I never picked up on that. I just saw, like, Cuba Gooding Jr. acting like a goofball. I never, like... Yeah. the context of the setting. He does have a great performance late in the movie, full in drag, which is actually <laughs> like the highlight of the film. That makes it worthwhile to suffer through it, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Anyway, you watch anything recently? Yeah, actually, like, way too much to cover it all. So instead of, like, talking about the newer movies that are, like, in the theater, I want to talk about some older stuff that actually, like, ties into what we're talking about in the podcast episode today. There was a recent re-release of this movie from the late 60s Japan, sort of around hippie era, like, psychedelia kind of stuff, like, right after French New Wave. And, like, when the Beatles broke and were, like, a worldwide sensation, uh, this movie, Funeral Parade of Roses. I actually watched the trailer for that. It's playing at Broad. It already left, uh, unfortunately. But it was a masterpiece. Like, Oh, wow. It's about this community of, like, trans and drag queen sex workers in, J- in Japan, in Tokyo specifically, um, in the late 60s. Uh, the main character is a drug dealer on top of being this, like, highly prized sex worker. And you see her hanging out with these, like, film nerds who, like, make these, like, experimental art cinema things, and she kind of, like, laughs at them for being pretentious. And she hangs out with these, like, businessmen who, like, want to keep her as, like, a mistress. And she just sort of drifts through all these different circles. And the movie itself is this weird mix of, like, slapstick comedy and, like, art film stuff and, like... Yeah, the trailer, I couldn't quite put my finger on, like, where what angle is this taking, like... It's a vague retelling of Oedipus Rex, but the uh, plot isn't really anything except for, like, a weird string of vignettes. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Daisies, but uh, it's, like, a Czech New Wave movie. Uh, it's a um, similar vibe where it's just characters, like, pulling sort of irreverent pranks and, like, making fun of the world around them. And it actually touches on, like, really gruesome horror as well, like, really bloody violence. But, like, in the middle of those moments, it'll break to sort of make fun of the severity of the situation. It always undercuts itself whenever it's getting too pretentious, and it's all about, like, a fun, psychedelic experience. Awesome. Yeah, so Funeral Parade of Roses is, like, the movie I could, like, most recommend the last month I've seen. Wow, that sounds really good. I will have to check that out. And I've also been going to Britannia on Sundays at 10 in the morning. They play old movies for their matinee. Uh, I saw this one where Betty Davis plays Queen Elizabeth I. She wears these gorgeous costumes. Like, it'll be, like, mermaid green scales and, like, a baby pink Elizabethan collar because she's Queen Elizabeth. And she'll have this, like, neon green, like, fan. And then she had her head shaved because Elizabeth had a very high hairline. Uh, So she has this, like, ridiculous wig, like, halfway back on her head. And she looks like a terrifying drag queen. And the whole movie, all Betty Davis does is grasp at grapes and wine and just insult people, like, viciously. Like, she calls them, like, rats and, uh, (laughs) like, nincompoops and, like, all kinds of ridiculous stuff. And it's from 1939, so it's in this really lurid technicolor. And it's her and Errol Flynn in this kind of love-hate romance. And you just get to watch them, like, basically call each other vicious names for, like, two hours. She's, like, almost demonic in this movie. Uh, It's so fun to watch. Yeah, that sounds fun. That one's called The uh, the Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. And apparently Betty Davis played Elizabeth in a second movie from like 20 years later, but I haven't seen that one yet. Like, I feel like what you look for in a Betty Davis movie is to watch her, like, misbehave. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about, like, Baby Jane as, like, the, like, nexus of her career. Yeah. You kind of want to see her, like, break that movie star glamour and, like, just act like a feral animal. And it's really awesome to see her do that in the middle of, like, a costume drama where she's, like, dressed in, like, these, like, really gorgeous outfits and just still acts like a slob that, like, hates everyone around her and just wants to, like, <laughs> get drunk and eat grapes. Uh, so that was really fun to see with the crowd, too, like, early on a Sunday. And the other movie, I've been going back to watch Todd Haynes' early films. Um, he did Carol and uh, Far From Heaven or, like, his two Actually, movies. I saw Carol recently. I really liked it. Yeah, Carol's like a really beautiful, like straightforward drama about like like unspoken lesbian desire. Yeah. Uh, in the fifties, it's been weird going back after that one and watching his early stuff again for the first time since high school. Because you watch like Carol and Far From Heaven, and they seem like pretty typical dramas, just like really well shot, and like the uh, character work is like really well handled. Right. Uh, in his early stuff, it's like super fractured. His debut, Poison, from nineteen ninety one, is three separate movies kind of played like an anthology except they all work out concurrently like you just jump from one segment mm-hmm. to the other uh one is a black and white 50s monster movie about this scientist who drinks his own sex drive serum and then turns into like a murderous leper okay. one is about two gay prisoners in 1940s and it's based on jean Genet's our lady of the flowers which is like one of my favorite books 
And that one shot in like these muted colors and shot like a like a fake photography kind of set. Like it looks like set up tableaus. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is this really lurid color documentary about this boy who is abused by his father because he's queer and murders him and then flies away. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> and the whole thing feels a little disjointed because like these stories have nothing to do with each other. But it feels like this really strange expression of like queer anxiety. And you can just feel all these like like people are closeted and like there's like desire between two characters, kinda like Carol, where like mm-hmm. they can't act on what they want to do. And then the leper story has this like AIDS subtext to it. But it's all very like funny. It's like darkly funny and it can be erotic as well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it just makes you so nervous throughout the whole thing. It's not it's not his best movie, but it's been um really fun to like go back and watch him like basically throw everything he can at the screen those all sounded good it's it's funny that you watched a lot of queer movies getting ready for this podcast and i watched boat trip (laughs) (laughs) that's still queer representation even if it is like a negative example of like because if you think about it there aren't a lot of characters that are like represented on screen as queer anyway like in a major production definitely not i think they did a um glad issue to report on representation last year where they said like something like 12 or 20% of all queer characters in major studio releases were from one segment in that movie Popstar, that Andy Samberg comedy. Oh my god. So like really? all of it was just in one go. Ugh, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, stuff like Poison and Funeral Parade of Roses is like more transgressive, like in-your-face indie cinema. It's not like a major studio release, but they're like really great art films and like really fun to watch especially since stuff like boat trip is more like the norm or you get stuff that's like really like gloomy oscar dramas about like tragedies and like oppression and stuff which isn't quite as fun to watch Mm -hmm. well today we are talking about two or three queer films we are two straight white cis men (laughs) just putting that out yeah we're gonna admit to our limitations up front we tried to have a guest on today to sort of soften that up a bit but that did not happen so (laughs) uh hopefully we'll um treat everything with enough respect take our opinions at face value yeah i think the movies we picked are like a really fun thing kind of along the lines of like funeral parade and poison where like there's like a playfulness to like them sort of breaking the rules and stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, so that should be fun to watch and talk about yeah uh and all that's coming up to you right right now. now behind me the choice of the new generation weird clothes wild makeup and no particular sexual preference club kids or club brats you decide. They hold illegal alcohol parties in subways, and they take ecstasy, a drug known to cause brain damage in rats. The road of excess leads to a palace of fabulousness. Michael's mom, and I'm here to tell you. And now it's time for our Movie the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Um, This time it was my turn to pick. Uh, And because we were talking about um, a few queer art films today, I wanted to go back to this movie that I used to be obsessed with in college. It came out in 2003, and I picked it up around 05 in those like 4 for 20 blockbuster sales. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of a nostalgia check for me because I used to watch this movie all the time and it seemed like such a beautiful like art piece and like really like dangerous feeling. And now going back, you can see how cheap it was. Like it seems like it was filmed on like a micro budget, which is something I never noticed before. We're talking about Party Monster, which is the dramatization of club kid Michael Alleg who killed his drug dealer. You watch a young up-and-coming like artsy kid moving to new york from like a small town in the midwest and he slowly grows a cult by throwing these like club parties uh with different themes where people dress in drag and take ecstasy lots and lots of drugs yeah (laughs) ecstasy and um definitely a lot of uh, ketamine as well uh and eventually heroin and crack but (laughs) (laughs) much like his cult growing to the point where he's on uh television with like donahue and stuff the drugs gradually escalate until they're just like out of control i think this is a really fun movie uh like i said i used to be obsessed with it uh i had you in my phone as james st james 
for like the longest time. <laughs> so funny. Uh, the two main characters are, like I said, Michael Alleg, who was played by Macaulay Culkin. And this was sort of like a career revitalizing role for him. Like he had disappeared for a while. Yeah, I think think the movie he did before this was Richie Rich, which is quite the the leap. And he's not necessarily playing against type here. He's playing like kind of like a cutesy boy, even though he's in his 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just happens to be one that does a bunch of drugs and murders somebody. But he's still playing like nice and innocent. And he's always on, like he's always performing the same way like a child actor would. Mm-hmm. And his sort of frenemy is Jane St. James, who was a... New York City clubber before he arrived uh, and sort of took over the scene mm-hmm. and his played by Seth Green and no matter how much I think the movie might have slipped in my estimation as far as like considering it cheaper I think right. this is like a career high performance for Seth Green as this uh, sort of drag queen performer who's had his like territory taken over by this young upstart yeah I thought both the performances were really good yeah actually I mean I think that was one of the best things going for the film. So what was your like overall reaction seeing this for the first time? Right. Cause I, I didn't, you know, I don't have that nostalgia. So I'm seeing it with like a fresh pair of eyes for the first time. I thought it was fun. The movie f- flies by. It really does. I enjoyed the performances, but I would say that it leaves you feeling a little empty at the end. Like I don't, and it might have to do with what you're talking about, like them always being on. So you don't really get, a sense of like who they really are deep down as characters. It's kind of this like, but I, I think that's kind of the point too. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's kind of what I was struggling with. It's like, okay, well these, both these guys are so superficial and you don't really feel like you get to know them, but that also kind of works in the film's favor. Cause I think they are shallow and empty Yeah, and filling that void with like drugs. So in that, that sense, I think it kind of works. But I think it is like a flawed film. I think by the time it's over, you kind of feel like you've been on a long drug binge and you just kind of want it to end. Which again, I think like sort of fits with the themes of the movie, but it doesn't necessarily make for like a great film in my eyes. I I still enjoyed it, but I wasn't blown away by it. But I could see like if I would have watched this in like high school and not seen a lot of films that were this like stylized and frenetic that I, I think I would have been a bigger fan if I would have watched it when I was younger. Yeah, I was but, definitely drawn to more of those like druggy thrillers where people get in over their head and like crime uh, when I was in high school more than I probably am now. Yeah, and there's a lot of like just bizarre images and like the costumes are another highlight for sure. Oh, yeah. And just like some of the weirdness, um, it is like a captivating watch. And again, with the performances too. It definitely, like, draws you in, but I don't know. Only, it it draws you in only to a certain point and doesn't really go beyond that. Yeah, well, you're saying, like, the surface-level personalities that they have, like, being a performer, even when you're not in a performance context, like, you can see them sort of emulating people like Andy Warhol and Quentin Crisp and Oscar Wilde, which were, like, people who were basically famous for being famous. They were just tell these great quips and throw good parties and be like great guests. And you could see these two trying to recreate that career in eighties, New York city and basically just throwing fun drug parties and people would know them forever. I don't know if in a world where Michael Alec didn't kill his drug dealer and go to jail for it, if we wouldn't know who these people are as much. Amanda Lepore, who was an actual club kid appears in the movie during the Donahue segment that they faked with uh, Mm -hmm. Uncle Jesse from Full House. Yeah. Uh, And the two directors of the film, they're basically executives now. They run the film production company World of Wonder, who produces all of RuPaul's Drag Race and basically all of RuPaul's other various television shows over the year. They've been behind that. They also employ James... Uh, St. James as a blogger for their like content production company. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they used to DJ as like a musical group during this club kid scene. So it's almost like the scene itself is telling its own story in this movie, uh, which I find kind of interesting, but maybe they don't have that distance to like really go for it in a certain way. Like maybe the nostalgia of the dancing parts makes the murder stuff not as interesting. I don't really know. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Like if Alec hadn't murdered the drug dealer, like what would be, talking about it or like would there be a movie yeah maybe i feel like it needs that kind of scandalous like murder 
to really make the story interesting. Because mm-hmm. honestly, if he hadn't murdered his drug dealer, he probably would have just like overdosed and died, you know, and it would have been kind of a tragic early death. But that, that murder like adds a whole new context and a whole new like level of depravity. Like, you know, it goes beyond like ruining your friendships. It goes beyond like destroying your body. Like you actually murdered a person. So right. it takes a story to that like darker place, which I think is kind of what makes it interesting. That's definitely what sold it, I think. Like, or not, yeah, right. Not what makes it interesting, but that's like why I think the story is being told. Right. I think that Alec was at least good at promoting parties. Like, he was good at curating like an event that people wanted to go take drugs at every Friday. Like, he had that down. Uh, and you could see like Jane St. James still makes money writing. And these people used to DJ and now they're directing content for RuPaul. Amanda Lepore is still like a personality about town in New York City. I think it's possible that he might have like kept alive at some point. But he does overdose in the film and almost dies and then immediately asks for drugs as soon as he wakes up in the hospital. Um, And I I do want to single out that overdose scene real quick as like the worst part of the movie. He has like kind of a drug freak out in a hotel room. Um, he's doing heroin with Chloe Sevigny, who's like his girlfriend. They're in like some sort of polyamorous bisexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And when he overdoses, the movie starts overlaying images of him. And like, then there's like this really bad post rock comes in. It's really bad. The, I That is something I noticed as well. The music choice, like towards the end of the film, it kind of goes into like weird, like you said, like some arena rock, but also like ballady like melodramatic music that I didn't think quite fit with the tone of the rest of the movie. Like that's one thing it has really working for it is this like zany over the top like tone. And it's like really tongue in cheek, but then to like pile on that sentimentality towards the end just felt like kind of cheap and undeserved. Yeah. Most of the soundtrack is like eighties, club music mixed with like that early 2000s electro clash stuff which was like nostalgic for that era right uh, and i think that goes into what we were saying a minute ago like the director's probably more interested in the nostalgia of their like youth and like having fun remembering these parties and recreating this like like you said the beautiful costumes and like just the spectacle of people dancing to a dj in those spaces mm-hmm. and then yeah when it starts going into the post-rock during the overdose scene and, like, the recreation of the murder, it seems like they're kind of losing interest in their own story a little bit. Which is kind of, like, a fault at large here. Like, I think... Yeah, the movie, like, it kind of tries to play it both ways in the sense of, like, it's supposed to be this cautionary tale about drugs and this downward spiral, but then it also does kind of glorify it a little bit and makes it seem like sort of a fun time. Yeah. yeah, it tries to play it both ways. And I think that does have to do with like the people that were a part of that scene making a movie. And it's hard to like have nostalgia for something and also like be critical of mm-hmm. it at the same time. And I, and I think that's why it gets kind of muddled a little bit. Something that I didn't understand until we watched in this recent time was like how this club kid culture from the eighties um, and nineties coincided with ballroom culture which existed from like the 50s until now Mm -hmm. Um, i didn't understand like how those two things overlapped and pretty much what i can tell is that the ballroom stuff which we're going to be talking about later in the episode is something that happens once every six months or once every year and you sort of like build up to it Mm -hmm. and like you prepare all these like different outfits for the different categories and stuff where the club kid parties that alec and his friends were throwing were once a week just going to the club on a Friday or whatever. Yeah. So this was more of like a routine thing. And then when you start looking at the drugs they're doing, like he makes jokes like, uh, I won't do crack without heroin or like, I'm not addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to glamour. If you think about that on like a weekly routine of like doing drugs that heavily, like, Oh uh, yeah. It just seems completely lethal. Like it just will kill you. (laughs) You're not meant to live like this. No, exactly. I mean, and maybe that's why that scene didn't last for as long as it could have. Because <laughs> when you have everyone ingesting such a large amount of drugs, like, you're not going to make it. Yeah. Well, okay, there are, like, a few interesting side characters in this movie. Like, uh, Fez from that 70s show plays a DJ and, like, one of Alex's early boyfriends. And Natasha Leone and Chloe Sevigny are in it. And they're always, like, exciting to see in movies. The person I wanted to ask you about, though, was Marilyn Manson, plays a drag queen. That was such a weird... I I did not know that he was in this movie. Yeah. And, like, I had to pause it and, like, look at his face. Like, is that really... 
because it didn't quite look like I remember him licking. I'm just like, is that Marilyn Manson? I had to check. That was like such a weird cameo, but I, I don't know. It's kind of a highlight. He has a few scenes. He, he's never out of drag, and he plays a character called Christina. You see her take LSD and then drive a pickup truck with everyone in the back. Not pickup truck, a 18-wheeler. Yeah. And they're like, party in the truck! And everybody hops in the truck, and he like, can't work the shift gears. Uh, and the cops show up. Yeah. He's like, he tripping balls. never speaks a word, because he's always too drugged out to like, speak. He's just like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I I actually really liked yeah. that. I don't know. And I think the perfor- that just kind of rolls into like, the performance as being the best part of the movie. Like, if you want to see Seth Green just, like, being campy for 90 minutes, like, this movie is very great for that. And I, I do like the, like, cattiness between him and Macaulay Culkin. Like, they play well off of each other. Like, they have this chemistry that I think is, like, kind of adds some vibrancy to the movie. Like, I, I've never really thought of Seth Green as, like, a good actor. And I guess Macaulay Culkin, too, just because most people know him from his childhood days. But, like... They both can really act and they give 110% into the performance. I think it, the issues come more from like tone and direction. Yeah. Like those choices, not the casting choices. I like that even though they're like very catty to each other all the time, they do have moments where they're like tender. Yeah. Like uh, there's a scene where Alec kind of ruins St. James's relationship with his uh, father mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden realizes how much he hurts him and he just plays uh, Stacey Q's Two of Hearts and mm-hmm. they have just kind of like a dance party in the living room because he's just like trying to cheer up his friend that he just fucked over. <laughs> um, but then there's also on the other side of that there's moments where like he falls asleep the Seth Green and then he spits on him. Right. Like he that happened to him when he was Yeah, bullies used to like spit on Alec when he was a child. So it's like yeah, it's a weird love-hate relationship between them and it's like very toxic but that was an interesting dynamic. And, and since James is a friend of the two directors, I wonder like if maybe he had some input on how it went, like on the story that they told. I think it was based off a book that he might have written. It was. About, it, about the Yeah, the incident. book that he references at the end of the movie is the book he actually wrote. Oh, okay. That the movie is based on. I know the two directors also did a documentary by the same name that came out before this. Right. Uh, and I think it has like some interviews of Alec in prison and stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I'd say like overall maybe... There is a great movie to be made out of the club scene, mm-hmm. and this is very close to being that. It's just, over time, it's only gotten cheaper looking. It has that early 2000s digital indie film look to it, and it hasn't aged well in that way. It's weird, like, a lot of times that was not very noticeable, but then there'd be these shots that really just looked extremely cheap. And it's like, I didn't understand that, like, stylistic shift because it seems like it didn't have to be that cheaply like it seems almost like a purposeful decision to make certain scenes look really lo-fi right but i i mean i i can't say it might just be from them being like under um funded queer voices like they probably self-produced this and uh probably like we said earlier like had to focus on the murder stuff to even sell the story right and what was exciting to me in college was just getting to see like queer people having fun on on camera which is like not something you get in movies all the time and those party scenes and the costumes and like the glamour of it is definitely the more fun aspect of the movie yeah that, i mean that's definitely what i enjoyed like some of the costumes are so insane dude like i don't know well yeah the I club mean, kids are like famous for not trying to do like traditional drag and not like female impersonation it's more like creating these characters to so get like trolls and like giant flowers and like bloody nurses with like bone saws and like it's not sexy it's not even really feminine it's like performance in like a in like a um a pro wrestling kind of way like mm-hmm. amplifying your own personality into this bigger more cartoonish thing yeah they even say like whatever you feel like you are on the inside you just become that yeah but yeah no i, I would agree with everything you said and i think people should definitely check it out i mean i think it definitely does a good job of kind of shining the light on a scene that's not talked about much. And it's a good argument that Seth Green should be more dramas where he's, like, given a lot to do instead of just, like, goofy comedies because he, he has the chops. Yeah, and same with Macaulay Culkin. Like, I know he's done a few things since then. Like, what was the one about the Jesus... Camp? Saved. Saved, yeah. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. I, I can't really think of 
much else he's been in, which is weird because his two brothers have been like in a bunch of indie movies lately, and they're both very good. Yeah, but I no, I agree. Like Seth Green kind of blew me away. <laughs> Bogan came from Shade because it was a dance that two people did because they didn't like each other. Instead of fighting, you would dance it out on the dance floor, and whoever did the better moves was throwing the best shade, basically. No touching neither one of you. If you touch, I'm chopping you. I'm telling you right now. You could take the pantomime form of the vote. This is what generally sometimes I do, as I make my hand into a form like a compact or makeup kit, and I'm like beating my face with blush, shadows, or whatever to the music, then usually I'll turn the compact around to face that person, meaning like almost like my hand is a mirror for them to get a look. Then I'll start doing their face because what they have on their face right now needs a dramatic makeup job. So voguing is like a safe form of throwing shade. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Um, we're going to be talking about two documentaries on New York City ballroom culture. Uh, one is the landmark documentary from 1990 called Paris is Burning. And it had a 2017 like update sequel called Kiki. Mm-hmm. Paris is Burning is about 80 minutes, 75 minutes long. It is like a perfect film, <laughs> I would say. Dude, I actually, I was going to say it is one of my favorite documentaries i've ever seen it's so compact it's phenomenal yeah and it's such an exciting movie because it captures this vibrant culture that feels separate from the entire world but has this like infectious punk energy to it that just feels like super transgressive and like necessary to exist like you didn't know it existed before but as soon as you see it you're like of course this is out there and of course we need it in the world it yeah. does have a little bit of a backlash for that uh, because it is a white woman going into this like mostly person of color community and documenting a culture that's not hers. Right. Uh, I think that's a lot of the praise that Kiki got this year was that the documentarian, who's also a white woman, um, went in and more collaborated with the uh, subjects on like the final product than... Jenny Livingston did in 1990. But um, I just want to start off like kind of praising Paris is Burning for a while. Yeah, I because really like a great documentary is documenting like a certain moment in time or a certain event, whatever. And you literally are just dropped into this scene mm-hmm. and you immediately like you get it. You, you learn the rules, you see the dancing, you see the costumes and you're with these people at And it's, like, so much fun to, like, be around. And you can understand, like, why they need that community as well. And again, like you said, just that short run time as well just, like, makes it really pop. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, the movie is sort of like a Rosetta Stone for, like, ballroom culture. Like, it teaches you the lingo. Um, It shows you the participants, like, who they are. They're basically, like, homeless kids, for the most part, who were kicked out of their houses for being queer. And a lot of them are just, like, noticeably queer kids whose parents kick them out. Um, A lot of them are trans women who, like, have nowhere else to live Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of get by on, like, sex work and, like, shoplifting and stuff like that. And they form these houses that have existed apparently since the 50s of these, like, house mothers who are, like, older generation queer people who help them pool their resources and live in these, like, tight-knit families that sort of form, like, gangs in the uh, sense of... I'm trying to think of other New York staples, like West Side Story or... Uh, well, you know, I, w- I was thinking of was, like, the Michael Jackson beat it. Right. <laughs> uh, so, basically, instead of, like, fighting uh, for supremacy and, like, saying my house is the best, you see them fight through the quality of their homemade fashion and the quality of their, like, dancing, which in this right. case is voguing. The voguing stuff started as basically insults like they would just insult each other and then that evolved in them like aggressively dancing in each other's faces to like outshine each other yeah and it it reminds me a lot of this a more modern trend it's called like crumping Mm -hmm. you see that where it's like very very aggressive violent dancing right in someone's face as like a competition sort of thing like who can be the fiercest but yeah there's just so much energy at the 
at the competitions, like just everyone in the rafters, like hollering and the people dancing at each other and the judges like yelling out and it's just like energy coming out the building yeah and the balls are like once every six months or once every year they're they're not like all the time and basically you get the categories ahead of time and like plan your costume for these like drag events and the categories will be like schoolgirl or like business executive or work like wealth class and basically it's like these like really poor youths dressing like wealthy white people and they're like not making fun of like white no. wealthy culture they're more like emulating it and sort of like claiming it for their own image and making like high fashion art out of like mirroring that culture and then stepping it up just a, a step more into like this sort of like high fashion area like above normal dress that was one of the most interesting things to me was like you're talking about dressing up as like a wall street exact and then they're judged basically a how well they can fake it. Yeah, they call it realness. Realness. Which yeah. is like passing for the real thing. Which I thought was interesting. Like, that's judged highly. Like, yeah. When really it's like you're not being real in a sense, like you're not truly who you are, but just emulating this culture that you're not a part of that's like made you an outcast and kind of showing, like, I can do this too. If I had the resources. Yeah, if I had the resources, I could be a Wall Street exec. You know, I could rock this shit. And they do. Like, very well. Well, I think Jenny Livingston caught the culture at a weird time. Like, it sounded like the early stuff in the 50s and 60s was more traditional drag queen stuff. Like, the stuff that... I just went to a $5 drag show the other night. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, the lip-syncing performances uh, where they're doing, like, a sort of, like, glamorous movie star appearance. With comedy, of course. But, like, they're doing, like, that sort of, like, old-fashioned femininity thing. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time that this movie is documenting ball culture, it's more they're trying to do supermodels. Like, they're trying to do, like, Naomi Campbell and, like... Right, like, high fashion yeah. sort of stuff. And I think, too, the time period's important because it doesn't really get into the politics the way that Kiki does. Mm-hmm. But that, like, Reagan era is definitely a big part of this, like, the culture. You know what I mean? Like... I think the movie lets you infer the politics. Right. Where Whereas Kiki... And we'll get into this later, but that was one issue I had with it. It does sort of hit you over the head with it. And yeah. this one, it, it lets you infer. It's a little more subtle, but it's still there. I think I think what Kiki does is that it's a political statement of a movie that uses the ballroom culture as like an in. Like it like gets the foot in the door with the ballroom stuff and then basically talks politics once you right. get there. This one is more documenting art and like documenting this like vibrant art production. And uh, it's like a whole different vibe where... I, th- I think the way she brings politics into Paris is burning is she shows white, wealthy Americans walking around New York City and you see what their fashion looks like at the time. Mm-hmm. And you just do like do some people watching in like Times Square and stuff. And then there is one long monologue in the center, like almost like a centerpiece, yeah. about how white people own America and how this culture has been locked out of like that ownership. And they're basically just like existing outside of the system. So to watch them pile on this, like, VFW hall and, like, elevate that look into, like, an art form is, like, a really, like, oddly transgressive act. The thing, too, with uh, with Kiki is that it feels like a message movie, mm. which is fine. But, you know, Paris is Burning Again. It's just, like, feels more real in the sense of, like, just dropping you into a culture, not, like, setting out to make a movie with a specific message in mind. What did you think of... Kiki. Kiki, like, I don't think it's quite as interesting just because, like, like you said, that being a message movie, it it doesn't let the politics talk for themselves. Like, this is a movie where people use terms like deconstruction and triggered and spectrum and stuff like that. And, of course, it's set in the 2010s. Like, they're using modern lingo mm-hmm. to describe their existence. And it's more focused on, like, trans women, uh, not necessarily, like, this sort of like whole queer community it's more about this very small subset of younger people like ballroom culture is this larger queer subset that throws these balls on the new york city circuit every few months Mm -hmm. kiki is a subset of the culture that's just youth so it's like 15 14 year olds up until like the mothers are gonna be like in their early 20s so it's not like paris is burning where you have these like gay men in their 60s who have been around forever 
uh, guiding these younger hands. And Kiki, it's more kids who like have basically doing it for themselves. Like, and I think that's interesting. And I I do like the update of knowing that there is still a vibrant ballroom culture, and it's, and it's evolving. Yeah, too. But at the same time, I like Paris is Burning does more categories, which are like the different fashion um, competitions. It'll do more categories in five minutes than Kiki does in its entire runtime. Like, it's just not interested in the art the way that I'm interested in seeing the art of the fashion. Yeah, that's a very good summation of how I felt as well. I mean, in Kiki, they even mentioned like Obama and Republicans not uh, supporting programs that help. I get that, like, there's a big activist streak for obvious reasons in the community but like you i'm i was more blown away by like the fashion the dancing the categories Mm -hmm. like all that and that's why paris is burning just like oh so good well it's weird like the term kiki means like partying like hanging out so it's like funny to have the movie based off that term like be a little more just like sober-minded, like you get a little bit of them partying early on. Uh, there's a soundtrack by a DJ called Queen Beat that is like really fun and almost like a bounce music kind of way. And you get them doing like acapella voguing at the river in New York City. There's like some really beautiful scenes of just them in the park, like yeah, them by the pier, just like hanging out, dancing. Yeah socializing and i think that the movie could have relied more on their existence being a political act the way that paris is burning does but it's not like i didn't appreciate that it was made like uh you have this swedish filmmaker coming to america and Mm -hmm. collaborating with these kids and giving them a voice and it's like exciting to know that even after paris is burning ends and what happens there is their culture gets assimilated. So, like, Willie Ninja, who's one of the house mothers, becomes, like, a major choreographer for music videos. Madonna obviously does the song about voguing that uh, sort of blows up the culture. And, like, any punk entity, you see it sort of assimilated into, like, the massive consumerist perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you kind of feel like it's the end of an era at the end of Paris is Burning. I think the value that Kiki gives you, even though it is more, like, blatantly political about trans issues is that you get to know that there is still ballroom culture. And for us in New Orleans, like, we're completely separate from that. Well, and I, I thought it was good, too, that knowing that a lot of these kids are homeless, a lot of these kids are exposed to, like, AIDS and uh, abuse and mental health issues, that the community has actually, like, created, like, resources within that to, like, help them. Like, yeah, they have free HIV testing at the ballroom events and stuff, which is, like, so cool to know that. Yeah. Um, and the the subjects, you'll see them, I guess they had a couple years of filming. Like, she would probably come over from Sweden and film a little bit and go back and forth. And you see them as male-identified people saying, like, I'm never, I'm not trans, I'm a gay man. Like, I'm not interested in becoming a woman. And then you'll see them later after they transition looking back at that footage and being like, I had no idea what was going on in my life. Like, I was in denial about certain things. Um, and there's, there's, like, some real power in, in seeing that stuff. And, I, and I thought a lot of power, too, from, like, them talking about the reaction of their, like, parents with them coming out. And, you know, and some of the parents were, like, re- were perfectly cool with it, accepting. Others kicked them out the house. Mm-hmm. And I thought one really powerful scene when they're walking down the street and someone yells an expletive. At them and you, I don't know, like... Yeah, she like doubles back and is like, no, I'm not going to take that, like... Right, I'll come over here, I'll slap you in the face. Yeah. But just to know, like, with all the, the activism and how it's more on the open now, trans issues and queer issues, like, that there's still, like, a struggle, mm-hmm. basically. Like, it's still not accepted. And to see these, like, little kids yell these things at him, it's like, oh, okay, that's why we need movies like this. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I thought that was really powerful too but it's not necessarily like paris is burning avoids these issues like you have there's this one character um venus extravaganza in particular is like this really tragic figure and you see her talking about basically all she wants is to be like a regular housewife in the suburbs and like move out of new york city and she just doesn't have the means Mm -hmm. and by the end of the movie she's not around anymore um and it's really fucking hard to like take that because you get to know her personally and you see, like, how hard it is for her to get by as, like, an out trans woman in New York City in the 80s. So it's not like the politics are completely absent from Paris is Burning. It's just, like we said earlier, the movie's more about the art. And another thing that's not really Kiki's fault is kind of what we were talking about with Party Monster earlier. 
that switch to digital photography kind of undercuts a lot of the art. They show early in Kiki footage from Paris is Burning and that juxtaposition of the really beautiful color film grade footage from the 90s versus that like flat digital photography that most documentaries are in now just because that's the equipment that you can afford. It's really hard to take that. Yeah, it's weird because like... The cinematography in Kiki is actually really, really good. Mm -hmm. But in a weird way, it kind of makes it less effective. There's something about Paris is Burning with that grainy footage. It feels more like you're talking about like punk Mm -hmm. in a sense, like more like cinema verite, like someone just snuck in a a camera, not like these sort of really well composed kind of shots that don't, it feels like not quite reality. I get like that's something I've noticed with digital f- photography. It it does. It looks too clean mm-hmm. sometimes, and like you go back to older movies, and I like that aesthetic more. Yeah, in a sense, like. But it's, I do understand from a budget standpoint that to have access to a camera. Yeah, Kiki might not ever have ever been made if they had to work on film. Like it just would have been like financially unfeasible. But I don't know, like. Paris is Burning looks like a Polaroid in motion. Like, it has Mm -hmm. really rich color on top of being, like, a grainy film. It's not like it looks ugly in, like, a cheap way. It's, like, gorgeous, even. Like, just, like, the sequins and the glitter on the costumes and stuff are, like, really, like, intoxicating. And it's more dangerous feeling. Like, there's a lot of nudity in Paris is Burning. There's, like, you know, pubic bushes and tits and butts and dicks hanging out everywhere. And Kiki avoids that for the most part. Yeah, it's more like an issue film, like we were talking about earlier, which is valuable. And I watch documentaries like that all the time. But that's kind of the problem is that I watch documentaries like that all the time, and you don't right. see movies like Paris Is Burning, but like once in your life, you know, like it's it's a more like rare film, and its legacy has gone on to inform so much. Like we were talking about RuPaul's Drag Race earlier in the um, conversation about Party Monster. Drag Race is basically like Paris is Burning reworked into a competition reality show. Every episode where they do a new runway competition, its category is mm-hmm. in the same style. It's like executive realness or whatever. Or uh, space age realness. They'll dress like <laughs> astronauts. Um, they also do one episode a year where one of the many competitions is the library is open. And they basically read each other and do like insults for two and a half minutes. But that's another thing... That was really entertaining about Paris is Burning is that that insult part of the competition. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I guess they don't do that in the Kiki scene, maybe to keep it more like positive, I guess, which I, I could I guess I understand that. But I'm not sure. Like, I, I just feel like we don't get enough of the balls to even know. Like, they could have just not filmed it for all I know. Which is weird. Yeah, I wanted to see more because you see them like training for the competition you see them like shopping for the clothes but i feel like the footage of the actual competition only makes up maybe like 10 15 minutes of the runtime it really is more about the individual characters and getting to know them yeah and their stories so in that way like you said it's way more straightforward whereas like in paris is burning they'll have this big block text uh flashcards that'll say like ball categories voguing reading and they'll teach you what each term means, like shade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll learn basically like a lexicon of like how to talk about this industry. Which I could see how if you're going to do a quote-unquote spiritual sequel to Paris is Burning about the same scene, I could see how you would think that work has already been done. And you don't need to like reintroduce people to this lingo and this... Especially when you have things like Drag Race on TV, right. which is like in most people's television sets. Yeah, you kind of have to take a different angle... Because when you're doing a sequel to a documentary that's already considered like kind of a masterpiece, you gotta go somewhere else with it. And I do think this is like Kiki's a logical place for it to go. But I don't want to encourage people not to see it either. Like I think yeah, it's worth yeah. seeing. I, I just think like seeing Paris is burning and then immediately like watching Kiki, like I did, is just like not the same yeah. experience. But it's not like a bad movie. <laughs> no, no, I know. But there like, has to be a, a comparison. Man. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I just went to New Orleans Film Fest last year and we saw this documentary called Check It. And I had this exact same problem I had with Kiki where the movie was about this like gay gang. And I think in Baltimore where these kids like go out and basically through violence like establish their own place in the world. Like they dress extravagantly. 
A lot of them are trans. A lot of them are homeless sex workers. Like, it's the same vibe, except in a different city. But through, like, bringing knives out with them and stuff, they don't let themselves be bullied by other, like, uh, people who they have to share a space with. And people started being afraid of them. Mm. And, like, the idea of documenting that culture is, like, really exciting. But the movie is more about rehabilitation and, like, getting them interested in the fashion world stuff and legitimate internships and, like, basically molding their lives, which is such a good fucking thing to do in the world. But at the same time, not as exciting as if I had just been interviewing these kids and seeing, like, the what their lives are like. Yeah. It's just not as exciting. And true. Kiki feels like the kind of movies you see routinely at film fests or on Hulu and stuff like that. Like, there's just nothing... It's not, not as special, but it is worthwhile and a good thing that it exists. Yeah, and I think in a way, too, Paris is Burning... Like, I feel like the scene at that time was not that they were, like, telling outsiders, like, you can't be a part of this, like, if you're not, you know, queer, whatever. But I think at that time, it was a little less inclusive of outsiders. Mm -hmm. And then, so that makes it, like, a little more, like you said, interesting, because it's, like, this group that doesn't really let in other people, because it's, like, a safe sort of space. And then it seems like it's, like, evolved and like Kiki, where it's kind of open to the public. Right. Like anybody can come check it out. And that, you know, like you went to a, a drag show. I went recently. to a $5 drag show on Friday, yeah. Right. But I, I'm just wondering, like, if we were in New York in the 80s, like, or the 90s, like, would we be would welcome I, at that sort of, at a ballroom? Would I have known that it even existed? Existed? Like, so it's, that is interesting to think about, too, is like how it's become more accepted in a way, but that sort of makes it, I don't want to say less special or anything, but... It's less uh, punk. Like, I feel like at the mm -hmm. end of Paris is Burning, you really do feel a loss when, like, Madonna makes a whole yeah. pop song about voguing and it yeah. becomes a national sensation and people know what the dance moves kind of look like. And, like but, that, and they associate voguing with Madonna now. Yeah, it does. where it really came from. It does water down the culture a little bit. Like, it's not that it ruins it or gets rid of it, and it's good to know through Kiki that... It's still a vibrant thing, and it still does feel dangerous and like self-contained mm -hmm. in like a oh, punk yeah. way. But it's not the same. But yeah, Paris is Burning feels like it's that perfect moment where it's still like underground and still dangerous. She was very lucky to catch it before that at happened. that right time. Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, we're basically saying please watch Paris is Burning, and if you have it, catch up with Kiki. Uh, it's a, as far as like 2017 documentaries go, I've seen a few that I really like. Uh, this one isn't like at the top of my list or anything, but it was definitely like interesting and got me like re-excited about the whole like Paris is Burning culture again. And if you want to check out anything else we have going on, on the site, starting in a few days at the beginning of August, we're going to be start talking about a Fulci movie called The Psychic for our Movie of the Month conversation. So I'm going to be able to talk about Jalo for the next month, which is like always a fun, exciting oh, yeah. thing for me. Um, and we'll come back to you in a couple weeks with another episode. I think we're going to be talking about Disney movies that were made after the theme park attractions they were based on. So that ought to be a fun... Oh, that, that sounds like a good one, yeah. <laughs> Some nice, cheesy, uh, wholesome movies after this like queer, punk, uh, subculture thing we were documenting today. But yeah, I, I would definitely reiterate, if you haven't seen Paris is Burning, you have to see it. It's Turn this off right now. Go watch it. What are you doing? <laughs> Uh, we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.